My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's Sustainability Editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Do you mind if I move the microphone? I just, I need to lounge. <laughs> Devotion, darling. Shut up. I think as humans, we are major forces to be also reckoned with. And I think creativity always flourishes when there is any type of crisis. That's been the absolute pleasure of is watching talented people who have skills far and beyond mine come together and work collectively. Einstein always said, nature has all the answers. Just look to nature, it has all the answers. Just because I happened to be able to source them easiest, I guess, I was buying original wool jackets from the 1950s. I was buying them at Portobello Market. And a one man's rubbish is another man's gold. For me, it was about age. It was about the attitude of people. And it's about how they're wearing the clothes, why they're wearing the clothes, and capturing a bit of their wisdom and empowering people to look at aging differently. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. Swedish giant H&M is the second biggest clothing company in the world. The first is Zara. But the H&M group comprises the H&M brand, but also COS and other stories, jeans brand Cheap Monday, and hyper-transparent newcomer Arquette. Anna Jedda has been head of sustainability at the H&M group since 2015. And one of the cool things that she has overseen is the brands stepping up on transparency. And in the latest Fashion Revolution Transparency Index, H&M was actually ranked in the top five out of 150 evaluated companies. Now, their supplier list includes the details of Tier 1 factories for 98.5% of their products. And in Tier 2 factories, I think it's 60% of their products. So this is way more than most brands. So they're doing pretty good work in that area. What else is good? (laughs) Well, they are founding members of the Sustainable Apparel Coalition, and they're a global partner of the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. And they have this goal to become 100% circular and climate positive. And we're going to get into that in this chat. Also, they're pumping money into sustainable fabric innovations. And they were the first brand to introduce in-store garment recycling bins. So look, I think credit where it's due. This is not black and white stuff. I personally think that H&M does some genuinely credible work around sustainability and collaboration. And I think they're far ahead of their competitors like Zara, Mango and Topshop on this stuff. Now, on the downside, H&M produces too much product and their model is about fast turnover of clothes. They want you to be in there buying new stuff as often as possible. In March, the company's quarterly report revealed that they were sitting on $4.3 billion worth of unsold clothing. And this quote is from the New York Times. They wrote, The scale of the problem illustrates H&M's vast size. As one of the world's largest clothing manufacturers, it produces hundreds of millions of items each year. 
And there are so many that a power plant in Vastaras, the town where H&M was founded, relies partly on burning defective products the retailer can't sell to create energy. I mean, no wonder this stuff gets negative headlines. It is shocking. So, where are we at with H&M? I mean... As I said before, this stuff is not black and white. There's good and there's bad. This interview was recorded at the Copenhagen Fashion Summit. It was quite pressured. Anna was literally about half an hour before she was due to go to the airports. And we also had trouble finding a private spot to record in. And look, I don't mind telling you that I worried afterwards that I didn't get to the real deep stuff that I had wanted to address. You know, questioning fast fashion as a model, as a concept. But then I thought, okay, well, was that ever really going to happen? I mean, I'm not sure that there would have been much to gain by going in there on the attack. I like Anna. I think that she has a genuine passion for sustainability. And I was interested to hear her perspective and to listen to what she has to say. And I think that as a company, H&M does do some important things when it comes to leading, particularly around sustainable textiles. So the way I look at this is it's about access. In sustainability circles, there's lots of talk about big, bad, fast fashion. But how often do you get to talk to the guys on the inside to ask them how do they frame it? How do they talk about sustainability as a brand and what are they focusing on? But also what do they see as their biggest challenges? So come at this with an open mind and see what you make of it. And please do let me know. I'd be looking forward to hearing your feedback. And don't worry, I do ask about overproduction and overconsumption. Anna's response is pretty predictable. You know, they can't say that they want to produce less. It's just not in their business plan. But I think this is a valuable conversation and I'm grateful for Anna taking the time to talk to me and for being so frank and generous in her responses. I'm so happy that we're taking this chance to record this backstage at the Copenhagen Fashion Summit. <laughs> this really is backstage. It really is. It's been quite a journey. We're like in the depths of the back of the concert hall. Yeah. We've shut everyone out. Exactly. Great. Yeah, it's like the concert hall cave it that we're is. in. But yeah. Anna, I want to actually begin not with Copenhagen, but with the Global Change Award. Yes. Last year, an Australian innovation was one of the finalists. I know. Congratulations. Professor Shuge Wan and his team of scientists at Deakin University in Victoria, they were recognised for their work into dyeing new denim using old denim. Mm. And they grind it down to make a pigment. <gasps> and then at the awards ceremony earlier this year, Bandana Turawi, who is Vogue India's editor-at-large, she wore a dress which was dyed using the same process. That's right. It's fab. And it was an amazing looking dress as well. I wonder if you might just tell us about some of the innovations that come out of the awards. Because it's pretty cool stuff. It's absolutely amazing innovations that we see coming from that. So, I mean, Global Change Award, that's the world's biggest, actually, innovation challenge for early stage innovations for closing the loop of fashion. Uh, So that's really where you get to see the most, what I think, creative and interesting solutions to date. And if we look at the winners that we've had, I mean, they have ranged everywhere from how you can turn coal manure into like a bio-based fiber, how you can dye things with the help of algae, how you, I mean, one of this year's winners as well. Mushrooms. Uh, yeah, exactly. How you can create dresses out of mushrooms or how you can use food waste and turn that into a new bio-based material and at the same time also create increased income for the farmers. So, 
I often get the question of, you know, how do you picture the fashion industry in five or ten years and things like that. And I think that some of the things that we're seeing within this innovation challenge will actually be the normal way that we will produce and make fashion in the coming years. And that's just amazing. How does it work, the Global Change Award? So it's actually, there's a million euros prize money that's shared between each winner last year, right? Exactly. It comes from the H&M Foundation, though, not from H&M, the brand. Can you tell us what the foundation is? Yeah, so the H&M Foundation, it's a, a separate entity from the H&M brand and it's the foundation that has been supported by the person family. Uh, it was set up in 2007 and it was reinforced in 2013 and so for more than 1.3 billion Swedish crowns, we'll have to figure out yeah. how much that is in Australian dollars is, but it has been transferred to the foundation and it's really about creating um, positive impact. And so all into innovation? Not all into, into innovation. Uh, I mean the overall mission is to support the sustainable development goals. And they have four different areas that they work on. So it's equality, it's education, it's water and it's planet. And the Global Change Award very much connects to the planet focus that they have. Okay, so Ellen MacArthur was one of the judges at this year's Global Change Award. I just interviewed her this morning. She's amazing. She is fantastic. I was interested to learn that H&M is a global partner of the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. What does that mean? So, I mean, we have been collaborating with the Ellen MacArthur Foundation for quite some time, but two or three years ago, we decided that we wanted to take our work on circularity to the next level. So we became a global partner with the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. And that basically means that you have pretty much one brand per industry that becomes a global partner. And you work in very tight collaboration with the EMF Foundation on basically starting the move for your brand or your company towards circularity. So that means that we work in very close dialogue, that they are involved and help us to set relevant goals and that they really contribute with expertise that we don't have in-house, for example. So they're really a fantastic partner to have in such a strategic area, circularity. We're also here at the Copenhagen Fashion Summit where H&M is also one of the strategic partners, I think you call it. Yes. Why does H&M get involved in these areas? To us, we're one of the biggest retailers in the fashion industry. And the second biggest in the world. Yeah, exactly. So we have quite a big size. And of course, to us, we see that both as a responsibility, but also as a great opportunity. Uh, We have the opportunity to really help to lead the industry towards a more sustainable future. And that really involves also being part of agendas and forums like this, to be able to both share our experiences, but also get input and have discussions with others who might know even more than we do in certain areas. And I think that looking at where the industry is now, we have done a lot of the the basic things you can say, things that you can do within the factory walls or in quite a sort of isolated environment. But the challenges that we face now really require system change. It requires collaboration and that actors really sort of are brought together. And I think that's why forums like this, like the Fashion Summit, are so important, not only because you talk about important topics on stage, but also because that's where you have all the people in place who can make yeah, all of the change networking. happen. Yeah, it's networking. It's full of every single person in you it can is. think of who makes change in this or who has the ability, holds the reins of power. Yeah, for sure. They're in this place right now. Well, you build bridges, you find partnerships, you get input, inspiration, and you need all of that to really sort of spark the change. The conversations have been quite frank. Yeah. Like people are saying, okay, we need a completely new system. Mm. We need circularity, but we don't necessarily know how to get there. Yeah. And people are also saying we're producing too much. No, but I think you're perfectly right. And I think, I mean, looking into how sustainability has changed over the past just five years, I think that no one treats this as cosmetics anymore. I mean, this is hardcore business. 
And the way that we see it is that this is not just, it's something that we do because it's about the kind of company we want to be, but it's also, even more importantly, about securing our business, making sure that we can exist and operate not just in the next three years, but in the next 15 and 20 and 30 years. So this is really at the core of a business survival today, I would say. Mm. All right. We know that fashion needs to change. All stakeholders know that we can't continue to particularly take, make, discard. Mm. This is not a smart way to be behaving. Mm. So let's talk about circular fashion mm. and let's talk about H&M's commitment to work towards that. We set a really bold vision that we want to become 100% circular. And to us, that means looking into the full approach of circularity, all the way from how we are designing clothes, the material that is being used, the processes that go into that with like water and chemicals, and of course, how the clothes are then ultimately used and cared for by the customers and being bought back into the system. So that's the full scale of things. Now, of course, this is a huge undertaking. And I mean, to be honest, we have don't have all the answers that we're going to get there yet, but we have set some really important milestones. And one of them refers to the use of materials. So, I mean, we use a lot of materials because we are producing goods. So here we have set a really, I think, ambitious goal that by 2030, all materials should be either sustainably sourced or recycled. And that's, as we see it, a really important step towards the mission to become fully circular. How far are you towards getting there? Um, well, today, 35% of all material is either sustainably sourced or recycled. So I think that we're well on track towards that. I think the big challenge that not just we have, but the whole industry is to maximize the use of recycled materials so that we make sure that we don't just use new materials that are sustainably sourced, but really use what's already in the system over and over and over again. The Ellen MacArthur report, A New Textiles Economy, 2017, revealed that stat, which I think we all in fashion took notice of and went, what? Which is that less than 1% of clothing that's collected is recycled into new clothing. Yeah. It's not much, is it? No, no, I mean, I thought we were further much. ahead as an industry yeah, with I that. Think I was the like, biggest, wow. The biggest challenge, I think, still is that so much clothes end up as waste that is not being brought back into the system. Incinerated yeah, or exactly. landfill. What do we do? That's the, the fantastic part of a circular system and the steps that we are taking now by collecting these clothes to begin with, making sure that they don't end up as waste. And then once they're being brought back into the system, you, of course, want to utilize the fiber, the material, as best as you can. Uh, if we look into what is being brought back into our stores, 50% of all that is actually in such good condition that it can be reworn. Like, you know, a perfectly fine dress that someone has outgrown or something like that. And then the remaining share... So what, is, just to pick you up on that, what do you do with that? So it's being sold to like vintage shops or secondhand markets or, you know, all different kind of options to make sure that it just gets a new life. Because that's, of course, the best thing if that dress can live on as a dress for as long as possible. But then with the remaining share, what you do is that you recycle it in a different way. It becomes like stuffing and sofa or car seats or like cleaning cloths and so on. Is it mostly mechanically recycled, so yes. torn apart? Exactly. And that's where you have the challenge today, but also the huge opportunity for tomorrow. So as Ellen was saying, of that share, very little actually goes back into new clothes. But that's because you have innovation challenges. But if we look into what is coming to us, what we can see within the Global Change Award, there are solutions out there that within the next three to five years is going to revolutionize that. So the challenges with 
recycling fibre are. I know one of them is, for instance, if you mechanically recycle fibres, the fibres become of lesser quality. Yeah. So you have two key challenges, I would say. The first one is that most clothes are blended materials. And today, when you separate them mechanically, you cannot separate different kinds of materials. So you need to do that in, I mean, you can do it on full cotton clothes, for example. So that's the first challenge. And here we're seeing really exciting technologies that make it possible to actually, in a good chemical way, like good chemicals, Meaning that you capture the solvents or whatever is used? That you have good good solvents, that you actually can dissolve clothes and thereby separate the fibres. And then it also means that you don't have to do the mechanical shredding, which then impacts the quality of the fibre. But in that process, the fibre actually kept intact so that they have the same quality in the new pair of clothes as they had in the old pair of clothes. We can do that or we're getting there? We're getting there. But I mean, I would say that maybe five years ago that felt like such a distant future and now I am positive that within three to five years those technologies will be available and also commercially viable so that they actually are accessible to brands like H&M and and many others in the industry. Right now is that prohibitively expensive that process or is it just not actually fine-tuned enough to be operational? Yeah I think it's both. I think it's it's a matter of those technologies today are very much Mm. at a lab scale Mm. so they have moved from the drawing desk, which Mm. is really good, but they're now being sort of tested in labs. The next thing is to pilot it and take it to scale to make sure that you can actually get the scalability that is needed and to see if those technologies still survive that step. Right. So that's where we are right now. You collected 18,000 tonnes of garments in 2017, is that right? Yes. Which is about... I think it's about 89 million T-shirts. Now, are these garments that you collected from in-house store drop-off points, mm. they're from all different brands? Yes, all different brands, all types of conditions. And I think that's the that's the beautiful part, that many people, they might have like a dress that they feel is not maybe their style anymore, they haven't outgrown it. So they know that that they can actually give to a charity shop. But what will you do with that sock, for example, or the kind of pair of jeans that are torn or that, you know, you don't really feel can be reworn by anyone mm-hmm. else? That's, I think, also where the garment collecting program is so good because it takes care of those clothes as well. 89 million t-shirts sounds a lot. How popular are these take-back schemes? How often are they being taken up by customers? Well, quite and how a common lot, are they? Actually. Are they in all stores? They are in all stores uh, all over the world. And we're seeing uh, an increasing uptake from consumers that they're using it. And I think that's I think that's fantastic, not only in, in the sense that those clothes are being brought back into the system, but that people are changing their behavior because I think that's one of the key challenges towards becoming uh, more sustainable in the industry is getting people to really change the way that they're thinking about clothes. I mean, today I think that a lot of people don't really cherish or value the clothes that they have. But I would have to say, you are selling a large volume of clothes yeah. and you do want people to come in and buy more clothes. So do you really want people to hold on to things for a long time? Yes, for sure. I mean, I, I think if we're going to be really frank, by 2030, we're going to be eight and a half billion people on the planet and all of them will need clothes in one way or another. And I think that we can for sure be one of the key providers of that. It doesn't mean that everyone should buy more clothes. I think we just want people to come to H&M and that's where they buy the clothes. So so I always give that advice and that's how I think of myself when I go shopping, that I buy things that I really like. I mean, I'm old enough now to know what my style is, what I like, you know, what fits me and all that. So I always try to buy things that I really like and then also take care of that, making sure that, you know, that beautiful dress or the shirt that I have or whatever, that it really has a long life. And then I do think it's really great that once you feel that this may not fit me anymore or it's not really what, you know... 
doesn't really go with, with what I normally wear these days, then it is an opportunity to give it a new life in a different stage in the circle, so to say. If we could have a truly circular fashion system, it would be fantastic. Yeah. I mean, the more I look into it and the more I hear about it, I mean, it's common sense, but it's also very appealing. Mm. But that's in an ideal world. How likely is it we're going to get there? Sometimes it feels like a pipe dream, you know, a bit like a ephemeral distant possibility no i think maybe from afar you can see it like that but looking into all the different companies innovators academia that we are in touch with on a daily basis and where the industry is heading i am positive that there's not going to be a distant dream that will for sure be the future and i think one of the reasons to that is that there is no other option fashion has provided people with i think a lot of joy fantastic developments, creativity and all that for centuries. There's something fantastic in the fashion industry, but it has a lot of devastating consequences. So what we need to do is to tackle what is bad with the industry and keep what is good. And the way that we see it is that that's all what you know, circularity is all about. And if we can actually manage to do that, to decouple the use of resources from the growth, the economic growth and the growing population, then it will be possible for the fashion industry to exist with all the good parts that are in it. And I am, I mean, if, if I look at the innovations that we see, the creativity that's in this industry, the things that we come across on a daily basis, I mean, I am convinced that we're going to get there. What's the biggest challenge to us getting there? So I, I would for sure say that it is about both collaboration and innovation. I mean, as we talked about today, we don't have the recycling technologies that we need to really make that circularity happen. So, of course, that innovation needs to not only happen and be identified, but also taken to scale. So, of course, that's one of the big things. And the second one is really collaboration. And I think what, what Ellen has, is talking a lot about a lot, and that's also sort of the whole take on the circular economy, is that what is actually, you know, waste in one industry is a perfectly fine resource in another. So that will require a lot of collaboration, not just within the fashion industry, but within a lot of industries that are next to it. But that means that we will need to think quite differently about how we are collaborating. And I mean, what partners we are seeking and how we can create partnerships across the value chain involving completely new types of companies and actors that we before have not had contact with. And I think that's super exciting because, I mean, the challenges that we face today are not something that anyone can solve on its own. So that broad collaboration is needed. And I think that, I mean, looking back where we are now compared to a couple of years ago, I think we're in a completely different place with that. Do you? Yeah, there's a, a different recognition, both regarding the, the need for collaboration, but also the fact that sustainability is not, you don't compete on that. Not in these type of issues. I mean, everyone benefits from workers having, you know, proper working conditions and good wages, as well as that we don't use more resources than what the planet can afford. So I think that it is competition neutral in that sense, which of course creates better conditions for collaboration as well. I feel like in this conversation, it's impossible to escape the elephant in the room, which is you produce a lot. Yeah. You are the second biggest fashion company in the world. Mm. So I have to ask you, why yeah, no, not produce less? Well, I, th I think that's, I mean, we get that question a lot. Yeah. So, And I think it's a really relevant question. To me, the way that we see things, it's not that people need to buy more clothes. I mean, I think that we can grow a lot just by taking market shares, to be honest. And I think that's really how we are envisioning the future. I do think, though, that if we look at the fashion industry, there is a positive side to it, which also has to do with job creation. 
And the fact that, I mean, millions of people, especially in developing countries today, are getting jobs thanks to the fashion industry. Sweden, where I come from, used to be a fashion or a textile market as well back in the days. So, I mean, that has really helped us to transition into a much more developed uh, market economy today. So I think it's important to recognize the role that the fashion and the textile industry has in creating social development and growth. But it's equally important to recognize the toll that that has on the environment. And that's what you need to tackle. And that's really how we see that if we can keep the good parts of the industry and getting rid of the bad parts. I mean, that is really how I envision a sustainable fashion future. You get slagged off a lot, don't you? I mean, I was, <laughs> my question is, I guess, is it worth putting your head up? Because I could name other big fashion companies that don't put any money into these innovations, don't talk about sustainability, certainly don't come to the summit, and mm. yet they escape the criticism yeah. because they're not putting their head above water. Mm. And I think it's fair to point that out, actually. If you didn't do it, is Topshop going to do it? Now, you can't answer that, but I would say <laughs> no. Yeah. So what's your feeling on that? I mean, you do come up for a fair share of criticism. Well, I mean, I think, to be honest, I mean, that is, of course, frustrating because we know that we do a lot of great stuff and that we have taken a leadership position in the industry. But I think it also comes back to why we do it. So we don't actually do it to get that credit, to be honest. I think the way that we see it, and I think that's also because we have quite a long-term perspective on our business, is that this is about future-proofing the H&M group. So how do we make sure that we have the resources that we need, not in 2020, but in 2025, 2030, 2040, how do we make sure that we have stable supply chains, that we have innovation and access to that, that we are basically a front runner when it comes to fashion retail? And a big part of that is really sustainability. So I think that is one of the key things that really drives us and that makes us feel very confident in that what we're driving is the right thing both for us as well as the, the planet and the communities around us and so on. Then I think the criticism that we get I have no problem with the scrutiny that we get for being a big company. I think that's good. And scrutiny can also help to actually drive change. I think my frustration is maybe more about the fact that it's becoming very simplistic, that you try to find the easy answer in quite complex issues like wages or regarding materials or cotton farming or whatever it could be, and that people today don't really have the time to dig into the details. But... I think part of a leadership position is also about, you know, being the first mover in that sense to stick your neck out and to try to pave the way for others. And I mean, now we're here at the summit. And when I was here one year ago, we could see in the, in the Pulse report that there was a big gap, a lot of like small and medium sized brands who basically didn't have any performance whatsoever on sustainability. And today they've actually increased a lot. And I think it has to do with, you know, many players who like H&M and others that really tried to pave the way for, you know, finding those solutions. Let's get on briefly to your latest sustainability reports. Yes. There's some good stuff in there. What are you most proud of and also what are the big challenges? Ooh. Well, I think for sure, I mean, looking into the, the ambition we have around circularity. So we are today at 35% when it comes to the material that we use, meaning that that's either recycled or sustainable source. And I think that's a great achievement. And most importantly, it gives us a lot of confidence that we will be able to reach the 2030 goal that we have set. I think also, I mean, looking into the ambitions we have around innovation, that we have made two investments in two, I think, really exciting technologies around materials that we were talking about before. And then, of course, I mean, the move we're doing around transparency. We launched ARCET last year, uh, which is, I mean, one way of really putting sustainability and transparency at the centre of a brand. And I think that that has really, you know, reasoned well with customers. And we feel that that's really a, a brand that's very current and close to the future. So the biggest challenges? 
I think, I mean, that still comes back to when we talk about the, the need for innovation, and that's mm. one. What we haven't talked so much about is the social aspects as well. I mean, we have been working a lot on social conditions, especially around fair living wages. And I think we've come to a point where we have made a lot of great progress within the factory walls of the suppliers that we work with. So the next step is really to move beyond the factory walls to try to reach the industry, to really collaborate not just with the brands who are in the same factories as us, but also those who are not to create a more level playing field around wages in the markets where we are as well. So a big challenge there is, of course, that collaboration, getting all the different brands and actors are needed on board and making everyone see eye to eye on how to really drive such a complex issue like wages. And living wages, I mean, no one's paying them anywhere, are they really? I mean, you can't really, it depends on what you mean with the living wage, but I think we can all agree on the fact that in many countries, workers today are not making enough money to really provide for themselves and the family in a way that we want to. We have been quite clear on the fact that we don't think that we as a brand should say what is a living wage, that is this amount of taka or this amount of taka, but rather that we should create conditions for a living wage to be paid, both within the factory as well as outside the factories. And I think that we have, I mean, we're the only brand within the industry that actually have set the strategy to do that that. This has been a, a long journey. We're nowhere near done. But I think the learnings that we take with us and the results we have achieved so far, I mean, we have wage management systems in place on, I think that's, that's short of 200 factories today, which means that those workers are getting a much better chance at getting, you know, wages according to the skills, experience and so on and reviewed on a regular basis. I mean, that's one way of, of starting to transform the industry. Let's finish on a high note. The Fashion Revolution Transparency Index for 2018 Yay. ranked H&M number four out of 150 brands. Looking at transparency, I mean, five or seven years ago, this was you know something that was very much on the verge. Today, that's one of like the core topics when it comes to sustainability in the fashion industry. So I think it, it's really fantastic to see how that has grown. And of course, a lot of thanks to the support of the Fashion Revolution, how you have driven that question in such a, a good way. I mean... Just to give you a funny anecdote, but I mean, 10 or 15 years ago, we had a safe where we put our supplier list no because way. we were so afraid that, you know, someone was going to get access to where our suppliers were. Today, we have it on our website, just like everyone else in wow. the industry. Wow. So I think that says something about, you know, the mindset change that has happened during these past years and what transparency is today compared to five or 10 years ago. Thank you for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. It's in these been a very challenging conditions. <laughs> I'm like, what's the most challenging? Being in this broom cupboard? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So let's just hope that we can find our way out of here now. <laughs> oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that I'm defending you. I tell them all that they are wrong because I love you. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you where, okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My
love you because I love you because I love you because I love you